you have to use the tools that you're given. Hi, this is Agan Wukash, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. Our today's guest, Michael F. Schein, is an author of the book, The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandist, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers and Boundary Breakers, which was published last year in January in 2021 by McGohill Publishers. He specializes in the study of hype, and we will have a lot of questions about that, <laughs> uh, and the strategies used to generate intense emotional reactions from large numbers of people to achieve specific outcomes. Uh, that's another thing. Like You can generate a lot of emotional reactions from large number of people, but to get the right reaction, oh, yeah. that's the trick <laughs> here. Mike's articles have appeared in Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Huffington Post and Psychology Today. He speaks to international audiences spanning from the northeastern United States, the southeastern coast of China. As a founder and the president of marketing agency Microfame Media, he had launched campaigns and created content for companies including eBay, Magento, the Medici Group, University of Pennsylvania, Gordon College, University of California, Irvine, United Methodist Publishing House, Ricoh, LinkedIn, and Citrix. And he, as I found on the internet somewhere, had recently begun practicing the martial art Wing Chun. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I say Wing Chun, but it's Chinese, so we're all pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> of course, obviously. <laughs> and and uh, basically what I found on the internet is that it gives Mike yet another similarity to Robert Downey Jr. Hi, Mike. So awesome to have you with us today. Yes, one of my many similarities to Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> Let's start with this one. What are the others? <laughs> Um, striking good look, remarkable talent in many different areas, you know. Um. <laughs> you do talk slower. That's an advantage here. He is a very fast talker. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and you are not wearing a helmet all the time. That also helps. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you start practicing that and then, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mike, I would like to start with a question or perhaps maybe a statement that you put out there that we live in an era where there's a myth of professionalism. What do you mean by that? Did I say that? I mean, that sounds like <laughs> something I would say. Yeah. I, I guess what I mean by that is that, look, you can't be incompetent at what you do and be successful. Although there are quite a few people who have... Um, disproven that idea, but it's a good idea to be competent. But a lot of what makes somebody extraordinarily successful versus just someone who makes a living has nothing to do with the content of what they do. It has to do with how confidently, with how much certainty, with the right jargon that they use, that they present their ideas. So it's kind of this idea, like we'll, we'll see somebody who presents themselves as this eminent professional, this, this guru, this expert in their field. And when you really dig under the surface, they're making it up as they go along, just like everybody else. I mean, we're all making things up, right? And some things work and some things don't. But I think the people who really 
I don't know, you build these empires, especially in the world of selling ideas, right? Like not, not selling sheet metal or ball bearings, but in the world of selling ideas, create a mythos of themselves as having all the answers to every conceivable situation of being the eminent professionals. I don't, I don't think any of us have that in truth. Actually, I think that there is another point to what you just said, which is that even though someone might know the practices that work in the past, they may not necessarily, or they are quite likely not going to work in the future or in a certain context or with your particular problem or anything of that kind. So yeah, we often get stuck into the best practices or good practices or like what made others successful while at the end of the day, they were at a different time in a different place. Yeah, it's funny. I'm in, as you mentioned, in, I guess, what you would call the marketing world. I don't like to view it that way for a variety of reasons. But, you know, my general industry is, I suppose, what you would call the marketing world. And you see a lot of this stuff. You'll see these marketing books come out or courses, and they'll say things like, if you, I'm just making it up, if you set up a certain kind of sales funnel with a certain kind of software, and you do A, B, and C on these social media platforms and put a clock that counts down, you're gonna get this result. You'll just generate leads and new customers like crazy. And what I always say is, by the time a book or an online course comes out that tells you you need to do A tactic, B tactic, and C tactic, and you'll get D, it's too late. Because marketing, the practice of generating new business is what it should be, is, all about setting yourself apart or coming in at an angle that other people don't have. And the minute you see 70,000 of these countdown clocks creating scarcity, as they call it, everyone gets the trick, right? So I'm a big believer in following general principles. There are certain ways that human beings will always react. Our brains are wired a certain way. Now, the permutations of that are infinite, almost infinite, you know, the, the different practices you use, but there are just certain ways that we process information. I think it's much more valuable to concentrate on on big frameworks and principles than these things that are going to go out of date in three minutes. Mm, True. (laughs) You mentioned that you don't like to call this business marketing. So what would you like to call it? Well, yeah, no, I mean, the title of the book that you mentioned that I wrote is called The Hype Handbook, and I use the word hype, and there's a reason for that. I mean, you know, words lose their meaning and lose their power over time. There was a time where the word disruption was actually a meaningful thing. I mean, disruption came from a book, The Innovator's Dilemma. It was a very cool concept. It was no one had thought about it, and now everyone, disruption, disruption, disruption. I'm making an ice cream shop. We're going to disrupt the industry. It doesn't even mean anything anymore, right? Or um, Innovation is another one. Innovation. Perfect. I mean, that's another one. Authenticity, right? I mean, words lose their power. So marketing, which used to mean something, what it's come to mean, what it should mean is getting people into an emotional state so they buy your product or at least give it a chance. I mean, the salesperson has to do the sale, but it's getting people in a state so that they'll make a sale. What it's come to mean, unfortunately, I think in a lot of cases, is what buttons do you push on the right social media, right? Like you'll see these marketing experts, quote unquote, and I've hired some of them who come in, you know, and and they show you all the work and all the smoke that they're generating. And we have this many hashtags and this many conversations and this many followers and this many 
you know, Reddit posts and you dig under the surface and you say, did you make me $1? What is the result of all of this? And did you change one mind, you know? So I use the word hype. I actually got that word from the hip hop community. So hype is usually considered a negative word. It means like drumming up a bunch of BS around something that isn't meaningful in a lot of people's minds. But in, in rap, in hip hop, it never meant that. There was always a hype man in a rap group who, um, like Flava Flav is the most famous example in Public Enemy. And they get the crowd worked up. Sometimes they even run the street teams. It's You get people hyped, you know, you drive emotion. And they're considered a vital part of the group. And I, I think, you know, this is just my belief that why they're comfortable with that world is that hip hop started in very disadvantaged circumstances. It was an outsider art, art form. It came from the South Bronx, which is the poorest neighborhood in the United States. And they didn't have the luxury to do marketing, to follow the steps and take a class. It was, what can we do to get around these roadblocks in our way? So I, I've just always liked that concept of hype, which I just define as getting a large emotional reaction from a large number of people to move them to a certain result. It's actually a very well done definition, I would say. Because, you know, you. like I said, <laughs> you can get a lot of emotional reaction from a lot of people. It doesn't mean anything, really. Yeah. <laughs> what really triggers me is that you are looking at somewhat scary groups to look for inspiration, like propagandists and mischief makers and boundary breakers. And yeah. on the one hand, they sound scary, but on the other hand, I love it. <laughs> 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 Because I think that indeed, often these people are showing as the fringes of what's possible. And I'm curious of all the tactics that you are talking about. What is the one that makes your heart go faster? Well, the first thing, before I answer your question, I want to speak to the first part of what you said, because a lot of people don't like the fact that I, I didn't just borrow from the Richard Branson and, you know, the Warren Buffetts of the world, because those people are acceptable. But then I looked at cult leaders, I looked at some really nasty people. And then I looked at people in between some of the early rock band managers and, and people like Andy Warhol. And I sort of put a thought experiment to myself when I first got interested in this stuff. First of all, the reason I used those people is because they're fun and they're really interesting. And I've always been interested in these strange people. But there's another reason, and it's that I feel like what interested me is were these strategies that, that these people naturally use inherently evil right like are these people evil because they use these strategies to get large numbers of people worked up into a frenzy and do things they wouldn't normally do or are these kind of people just naturally better at using strategies that are amoral that, that are neither moral nor immoral And I found that it's very much the latter. A lot of times why these quote unquote bad people, and a lot of them are not even quote unquote bad, they're just bad, are so good at doing this is because they don't have the shoulds that the rest of us do. They don't let their emotions get in the way. They view people as chess pieces. And I would not recommend that. But at the same time, it's worth dissecting what they do and seeing if it can be reapplied ethically. And it turns out it can. I mean, Martin Luther King used a lot of the same strategies, but in a very ethical way, right? So 
Um, that was the first thing. And then my favorite, I think there's one strategy and it's the first chapter that's indispensable that like that you just can't live without. And it's the strategy that every hype campaign, as I call it, needs. It's make war, not love. It's the idea that human beings are very attracted to being against things more than being for things. And even the people who don't think of themselves as aggressive people, they don't realize it, but they're against things too. So an example I always use, I worked in this place when I was a freelance writer called the Brooklyn Writer Space. And if you know anything about Brooklyn, I know you live far away from me, but um, this area of Brooklyn, it's, it's a very liberal, you know, women don't wear a lot of makeup, men speak softly, uh, everyone is, is into causes, that sort of thing, right? And in this space, it was even more so, it was writers. So, you know, a lot of leaves for lunch, you know, in containers, uh, and a lot of talk about anti-capitalism and non-conformism and, you know, this and that. And how many PCs do you think I ever saw in all my time there? <laughs> zero. One, one, okay. one, <laughs> one. So close to zero, yeah, one. And I'm talking like hundreds of people passed through this place. So Apple is, was at one point the most valuable company in the world. Steve Jobs was a megalomaniac. They use people in China to make their phones who throw themselves off buildings and they have nets to catch them because to not interrupt the labor flow. But Steve Jobs did such a good idea of being against the gray square corporate mentality cubicle. He even had commercials, right? You could be a hip artsy type like Justin Long or a square like the PC guy. And everyone bought into it. So all these non-commercial people, every single one of them had a $1,200 computer instead of a $400 computer. And you can't tell me it's because it's a better computer. It is an easier to use computer, but I don't know if it's $800 easier. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's a hook and bait here because first you buy it for the story, but then when you get used to it, returning to anything else is somewhat yeah. difficult, right? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I have a Mac. Yeah, they're easier to use, but still, I mean, Dell computers are what, 500 bucks. I mean, they're, it's, it, and they're fine. You just have to learn a few things. It's just most people, they're not going to be caught dead with a PC. <laughs> it doesn't feed into their image. Yeah, it's like having a good enemy is probably better than having a good friend in this business, huh? <laughs> it's not even the business, it's everything. I mean, if the companies and the people who form truly like diehard followings, the kind that, that you'll put their name on a t-shirt, it's always defining themselves against something, not always against a person. I mean, that's a lot of um, authoritarian type leaders come to power by defining themselves against groups. And that's the really dark side of how that works. But it's defining yourself an idea. It's defining yourself against a certain business practice. I mean, they're, you know, Basecamp defined themselves against the idea of complexity and work and overwork. And they're, they have a dedicated following. But going out there and saying, hey, these are my ideas and this is why they're good versus here are the ideas I can't stand and why they're wrong. The latter always works better. When you were sourcing material for the book, was there any tactic or anything that surprised you the most? There were a lot of things that surprised me. You know, one story that really surprised me was there's a strategy in the book I call it, give the babies their milk before you give them their meat. It's a phrase that a lot of religions have used. And what it means is if you're going to convert someone, proselytize to someone, you don't walk up to them and say, hey, the Garden of Eden was actually not in the Middle East. It was in Missouri. 
and Jesus came to America after he left Israel. Because that's extremely different than what you would expect, but that's what Mormons believe, right? You, you don't start with that. You start with, hey, I'm a clean cut young man who wears a suit. I'm extremely nice. Would you like to have a conversation about how to live a better life, how to eat better, how to be healthier, right? And that sort of thing. And then over time, you slowly introduce things. And, and this is not an offensive thing. I mean, Mormons have that phrase in one of their holy books, the Nation of Islam says it. I mean, it's in, it's in all kinds of religious texts, that metaphor. And what I've seen hype artists do is they use that too. The more out there, quote unquote, and I don't mean false, I mean out there, the more an idea differs from the norm, the more the tenets of the idea would tend to scare people off because they're so different. People are very reluctant to accept change. So if you wrap them in what they're familiar with and then slowly introduce the new elements, it becomes very digestible. So what I found is that both Warren Buffett and Charles Manson used this same concept. They both went to the Dale Carnegie Institute, which teaches let the other fellow feel like the idea is his, which is sort of another way of saying that, you know, just sort of ask them questions, let them slowly but surely come to the idea on their own. And um Warren Buffett used it to build a finance empire that many people, even those who are sour on finance, think he's a pretty ethical guy. And Charles Manson used it to build a death cult. So that just shows you the underlying ideas are, are just what they are. It's how human brains work. You know, we're, we're wired to be scared of sudden change as we should be, right? Because it keeps us safe, but you can use it to do horrible, horrible things and you can use it to build a legitimate business. So just like any other tool, really. But that surprised me, like how Charles Manson actually in prison, he was just this low-level car thief and pimp. And he took the Dale Carnegie class in prison. And he was like the top student. He had never been a top student in anything. He dropped out of high school, you know. And um, when he left, he saw that there was an opportunity in the hippie movement. He was older than those people. So he dressed like a hippie. And that allowed him to sort of, people would see him and they'd be like, oh, that's like us, you know, that sort of thing even though he was older. And then he would get with these people and he had something in his mind and he would kind of ask questions. He would say, so what do you guys think? You know, race relations are really tough in the country right now. I'm feeling like things are really going to change. What do you think the solution is? And they might say a protest. Oh yeah, maybe. Da, da, da. And they would say, well, we could like get people really angry by doing something aggressive. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. What kind of aggressive thing do you think? And they would just, they would come to exactly the idea that he wanted them to come to. And it would usually, by doing it slowly, I mean, it ultimately ended up being, let's break into mansions and kill people to start a race war. Wow. And one of these people was a homecoming queen. I mean, these were middle-class kids that he was able to do this. And now there were other elements. I mean, he used drugs, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a very extreme example. Who was the strangest person? Not necessarily evil, but the weirdest that you met yeah. in your research. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I had a story that was in the first draft and it didn't make the final cut. Oh. It was a great story, but it just didn't flow with the book in the edit. But th this guy, Anton LaVey, have you ever heard of him? No. He was the founder of the Church of Satan. Okay. <laughs> so what's funny about this guy is he was a complete showman. He had worked in circuses and this sort of thing. And he was trying to make a point. So, you know, his whole philosophy was do what thou wilt, you know, meaning like do whatever you want. And, and it was really just an excuse for him to 
take a lot of drugs and do a lot of sex and get other people to buy in to that whole thing. And he was just trying to raise a ruckus for the sake of it. So he would go on to talk shows and he would wear, it's almost comical. You can look him up. He would wear like pointy goatees, you know, and like all these rings. It was like what you would, Satan, right? And he did what was called a black mass. He had a very good looking, scantily clad woman draped over a Catholic altar and put the cross upside down. And so people would bring him on their shows and he would sit there very calmly talking about this stuff with his cloaks and his goatee and, you know, all this and, and showing these pictures and you're a despicable human being. And he would calmly say, well, what, what makes my moral compass any worse than yours? You know, more people have been killed in the name of Christianity than any other, you know, da, da, da. And, and he just, it was all theater. He learned it in the circus. And, and I don't think he really believed in Satan, but it, it got him so much attention. So it caused this thing called the satanic panic in the eighties. People thought that Satanists were taking their children over. They threw kids in jail but there were probably like 300 followers of this movement, you know, that were actual followers. So it's really interesting. I'm sorry it didn't make, it didn't really fit. I was kind of shoehorning it into one of the principles because it was such a great story. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know, kill your darlings is yeah. someone wants them. Yeah. What got you to write the book in the first place, by the way? I mean, it's a complicated story. You know, I'm a writer before anything else. I used to want to be a novelist and I still like to write fiction. And so part of it was just, I wanted to write a cool book. So like I knew that a quote unquote business book would help my business, but I put off doing that for a long time because I didn't want to write just a business book that was a business card. Whether I succeeded or not is for others to judge, but I wanted to write a book that was a good book in its own sake that you could read and sort of have fun with and be interested in and learn from, not just an instructional manual for some you know marketing practice. That was the first thing. Second of all, yeah, I mean, in my world, you know, I have a program that helps consultants and executive coaches and people like that do exactly this, you know, build a lot of attention around around their businesses. And, and in my world, in the world of selling ideas, a book does give you a sort of credibility that you can't get from any other place. But then again, I did not write the book until I had the right book. I guess the third thing is once I decided on those two things, I just got obsessed with this idea. I mean, I look back into my past and I see there were signs of this obsession, you know, going back. I've always been interested in this kind of stuff. Even the music I like, it's not like I never liked the guy strumming a guitar, you know, with I mean, I like David Bowie and Devo and things like that, you know. So um the yeah, mischief think, makers, huh? <laughs> yeah, mischief makers, theatricality, right? So um I think all of those things came together. Oh, and the fourth thing was, I, you know, I'm always testing ideas by writing articles. So I would write all kinds of articles for the magazines you mentioned in the beginning. And I would do like some, you know, perfectly decent article and it would get whatever, 2000 views, which is fine. But I would write an article on one of these topics and it would get like 100,000 views. And that would happen over and over again. And so I was like, you know, not only am I interested in this, other people are too. That So I'm a big fan of experimentation and doing little bets. And the bets just said that that was where I needed to follow. It's interesting because when I was writing the Umami strategy, I started with a similar thing. So I was writing, I was actually scared to write the book. So I yeah. started with the articles and only yeah. after I saw that people were interested in what I was writing, I said, hmm, 
maybe it's the right moment to actually take a step forward and put it together and see what comes out of it. <laughs> so I yeah, totally I'm, I'm a big believer in that. You know, I mean, I think there's some ideas that you have to do just because you have to do them. If it's your magnum opus, you know, even if no one reads it or sees it, you got to do it. But I think for most things, you know, big projects take a lot of time and a lot of resources and if there are a couple of projects that you could potentially be interested in or could potentially help you, I'm a big believer that if you can try to do that same project on a small scale and do a lot of those bets, a lot of those gambits to see, because the thing that actually gets you to where you want to be might be totally different than what you think. And, and it's usually only by putting it out there that you can do that. But if it's, it's a lot easier to do an article than a 250 page book and then find out that no one cares, right? <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Actually in your book, you are talking about one thing that really resonates with me. You are talking about building an intrigue to awake people's curiosity. Could you dig deeper into this and tell us how you see those two things playing such an important role in creating the hype. Yeah, I think people do this wrong all of the time in what we call marketing. Again, so this is why I think it's such a bad idea to follow rules. Okay, so there's this idea in marketing, and I hope this isn't too inside baseball or inside football, I should say, since we have an international audience. <laughs> but, but I hope this isn't too much insider stuff for your broad audience. And by football, you I... mean soccer, right? I meant soccer, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People always say in the marketing world, you should always have a call to action. Always, always, always. You know, there's no point in putting something out there if you don't have a link, if you don't have a URL. Like, what's the point of, of putting out a piece of marketing material if it doesn't have a URL? That can often be good advice, you know, sometimes. But that always is a problem, right? So I look at examples not from the online world. An example I talk about in the book is on the Lower East Side in the in the mid-70s, these posters started going up everywhere. And it said, punk is coming. And at the time, punk was not yet a music genre. It meant a punk, like get out of my face, punk, you know, it's prison slang. And people would see that and they would be like, what is that? Is that a band? Is it a gang thing? Like what punk is coming? And it was in a really cool font and you couldn't track it back to anywhere. It just appeared everywhere. So everyone started talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. And it turned out it was a magazine that covered the new music that was emerging in the Lower East Side, which became punk. But those bands were all very different. I mean, at the time, now it's, a, it's the Ramones, it was Blondie, it was Talking Heads, it was television. All those bands sound very different. So basically that word punk is what solidified the scene. But if they would have, can you imagine an update of that? If you had said punk is coming, go to www.punkmagazine to get a full <laughs> issue of the magazine. You know, it would have lost all the mystique. So people like mystique, you know, that's storytelling. That's when we have an unanswered question in our head, we have to find out more. There's a time and a place. Ultimately, you need to make the sale. You need to drive someone back to be able to find you. But I think it's like a seduction, you know, you go out on a date with someone and you don't immediately say to them, so uh, I'd like to know uh, first when we're going to sleep together, then when will we get married, date, and then when will we get married? And I'd like an answer, you know, to close the deal right now. I mean, that's a very um, <laughs> poor and even offensive way of going about it. You know, you start out with a date, you don't say everything that's on your mind because some of those things would be very inappropriate. You build up a little intrigue. Now, eventually you have to state your intentions, right? But but timing is everything. And I think in this data obsessed era, 
people have really underestimated that idea of mystique and building curiosity because you can't really quantify that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So actually what you're talking about resonates with my perception of efficiency and designing for experience. Yeah. Because if you go for efficiency, very often you lose everything that experience is all about. Yeah, very uh, true. Yeah, so I remember there was this cartoon joke about a usability engineer and game design. And basically it said that if you had an usability engineer design a game, it would just be a big button saying to finish press here. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that this is more or less what you were right. talking about. That But experience <laughs> versus productivity. I mean... I've maximized every hour of my day using these grids and boxes. Well, productivity is important, but what about the person who's not that productive and not and, and they come up with a game-changing idea because they loafed around a little bit? Yeah, but also with all those calls to action that we see around us, majority of people, they have the blindness for them right now. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's similar to those clocks I talked about in the beginning, those countdown clocks. It's like... We followed that at one point, a call to action was, wow, I can go to a website. A website was a new thing, right? But now if you have the call to action on everything and you were just in this saturated environment, you ignore it, you become blind to it. There's something came out there that built mystique. The best way to stand out might be to put paper flyers up again. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or do something that gets people to see that this is not a blunt sales technique, but something that's, like you said, intriguing or mystic, or it's made for them rather than to push them to do something. Like, yeah, so I exactly. think that there is the, the reverse direction happening here, right? That it's about me as a viewer or as a customer rather than about the company trying to sell me something. A hundred percent. Yeah. So there's a woman I, I wrote about in the book named Amy Semple McPherson, and she's not that famous now, but in her day, she was huge. I mean, she was around for a while, but the twenties was her heyday. And um, she was kind of still the template for what we call televangelists, you know, celebrity preachers. And radio is her thing. But before that, she she moved into a town. She had wanted to be an actress and she became a, a minister instead. And she went to this town. Close enough, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I mean, she brought all of those tactics to this thing. So she went into some small town and there were a million churches in the town. And so she she was pretty and she stood in a on a street corner in a white robe. And there were all these preachers up on boxes preaching about God and this. And she just stood there and looked off into the heavens and just stood there in a robe, you know, and people started to gather and they were like, what is this? And just for like an hour and just this big crowd gathered. And then like this, once the crowd had gathered, she went, follow me for salvation. And she ran into an, a church that she had staked out in the beginning. They all followed after her. And that was like the beginning of her congregation. That's a very interesting story. So I'm... she built the curiosity and the, and there's a theatricality. If she had been a, a plain looking person wearing, you know, slacks, it probably wouldn't have worked, but she was in a white robe and she was very pretty and she was looking up into the heavens and, and it just built this curiosity. Your story brings me to another topic that we discuss a lot between the two of us, which is the phenomenon of social media and also the 
possible fall of the social media as we know it now. And I'm curious what you think about it, because obviously the social media is a place where a lot of hype is being generated these days. Um, I think it's a tool. I mean, I think it's an incredibly powerful tool. Virgil wrote the Aeneid because he was commissioned by the emperor of Rome to legitimize his rule. So it was a piece of propaganda, but there was no printing press even. So it moved very, very slowly. It was very effective and it lasted for thousands of years, but you had to copy it out by hand. You know, the printing press was a better megaphone than that. The radio was better than that. TV was better than that. Now we have social media, right? But it's a tool. It's just like a word processor versus a typewriter. And I think on one hand, when people use the tool effectively, it's not only is it very powerful, it can be really bad. You know, people can spread really, really negative ideas very quickly. But I think there's there's this um, explosion of social media experts, often young people, who they confuse using it as an amplifier of hype practices, of mass psychology that has always been around with that if you just push the right buttons, as if just by using Clubhouse, it's going to change your company. So when Clubhouse came out, it was the new social media platform. And all these people said to me, oh, Clubhouse, we're going to use Clubhouse and it's going to be great. And I didn't use it. And I was kind of like, no one once said to me, I have this really great strategic idea based on how human beings operate and Clubhouse is the perfect tool for it. They were just like, Clubhouse, you know, Instagram is burnt out, so we're going to use Clubhouse. And I don't know one person who who succeeded using Clubhouse, right? So um, Donald Trump, very effective at using Twitter, whatever you think about him, you know, but his strategies are, demagogues have used those strategies since ancient Greece. I mean, you read about, you know, some of the ancient Greek people who helped cause the downfall of of the democratic system, and I'm not comparing the two, take that as you will, but they used the same sort of language and the same strategies. But Twitter amplified it. It made it spread more easily. But just hitting Twitter and writing anything doesn't really... Makes the yeah, trick. you know, <laughs> right, exactly. Just one question, since we are on a, on a topic of politics a little bit, when I combine those two ideas that you already mentioned, that it's easier to be against something or like we resonate better with a message against something, And I see, at least these days, it seems to me like the world politics is going through a phase of this like polarization and being against. And I see like almost every country I look into. Yeah, I guess I always think of my own country, but I guess Poland is very much oh, going yeah. through the same oh, yeah. situation, right? Yeah, it's, it's happening. I think in most countries, it's happening in a lot extent, of countries, even it, England. You know, yeah. it's. I mean, not to get. I want you to ask your question, but I feel sad about Poland because. Oh, I mean, we have a tradition of what we think of as a republican. You know, not a small r republican form of government, democracy. Poland did such a good job of building this system after the fall of the Iron Curtain, compared to the other Eastern Bloc countries. It's sad to see that turn, but that's just my own outsider point of view. Anyway. Yeah. So my question is, if you have a situation like this, doesn't have to be politics. It's just a good, good and timely example that someone comes with the strategies of really basically polarizing and having a very strong message against some other group. You could do the same in return and then you, you deepen even the polarization, but are there any strategies to counteract it differently? Because ultimately, this drives into a situation that is like difficult to back up from. Yeah, let me think about it. I mean, I, I think um, 
first of all, let's lay out the truth. It works, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, especially in times of uncertainty, which we're in, it works. And that's why we see it happening. Myth building is a good thing. And I actually think if, if I'm allowed to get political without trying to reveal my own beliefs, I think that in our country, the democratic side or the left, as people call it, where they mess up sometimes is that they don't do as good job of myth building. And myth doesn't mean a negative thing. Every nation has myths. Nations are myths, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you can be the biggest patriot for the Austro-Hungarian empire ever and love that country and go to war for them. And then the country doesn't exist. Like what changed, right? So, so nations are myths. And um, I think what the democratic side does, or at least adherence to it, the left, they haven't created a patriotic myth that counters the myth of the right. So Republicans say, we're patriots. We love our country. We love our flag. Don't kneel in protest. And they often define that patriotism as what they're against. They're against a more diverse public, against an America that doesn't look like the 50s. And I can only speak to my own country. Mm -hmm. I think that where the left really goes wrong is when you talk to your standard liberal person, you almost feel like they hate America. Like, even though they'll never say that, there's this idea of, ugh, you know, we're imperialists. We're just another empire. Ugh, Donald Trump, as if it's America, that's the problem. Whereas I heard um, the woman from Pussy Riot who's really courageous, got thrown in jail. Uh, Nadja, I'll pronounce it right, like Tolokova or something. Yeah, I forget how to pronounce her name. Really courageous woman. And what she said was she's so anti-Putin. And what she said is we don't understand the United States because we hate our government, but we love Russia. Mm. You know, we love the people. We love our culture. And I think that's a really effective myth. You know, there needs to be a new version if you can build a story that people can buy into, right? Like there was this old story of the United States. I, I remember talking to my grandparents who were in the World War II generation. And there was this myth that they really believed in that we were the only country that really effectively stood up to the Nazis because that's who we were. We're a free people and we could never stand like that. And I'm Jewish and my grandparents uh, more Jewish than me. And they used to put an American flag on their lawn every Memorial Day, right? And my grandmom used to say, we knew we were going to win, you know, even at the darkest time, because that's, we were, we were that country and we did the right thing. And, you know, this, and, and I feel like people really, as much as they define themselves against something, I think people really like to define themselves, be part of a story, be part of a larger thing. And when you don't give that to people, you're really allowing other people to take that over for you when you don't give an alternate when all you have is to give negativity why we suck why we're terrible why we're not really a country at all while all we do is bad and i'm not saying we don't have our faults i think that i would encourage people who want to make change to give people a club to be proud to be part of it might look different than the old version of the club but you need to give them some kind of club or else they're going to join the club you don't want them to join that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think that here lies a lot of struggle of the opposition camps, at least in Europe, and probably all over the world, where they often define themselves against. So you agree with them that they are against the right things, but they don't offer anything instead. And that's where people get stuck, really. 
Well, forgive my ignorance, and I don't know if this is appropriate for the show because this is coming from an outsider point of view. But when solidarity happened, and you know the Pope was involved in this, that wasn't there this concept that you know while we might be part of the Eastern Bloc and there might be communism, we're Polish and we have a very proud old tradition of being Polish. And there's a Catholic element to it, and it wasn't about being against communism so much as it was. It's like we're Polish first, and part of that is not being anti-church and, you know, that sort of thing. Is that a fair statement to make? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. If I might take us off the politics track, (laughs) because, oh, maybe this podcast will be listened in 50 years and, you know, the world will be different. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a fair bet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When you compare social media or internet to printing press before that and, you know, writing text before that, that was about amplification systems for your ideas. But what also happens is, yeah, it goes hand in hand, is also that access to these amplifiers is way easier and cheaper. Does this somehow changes the the tactics or the game? It probably changes faster at least, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think about Martin Luther King, who used a lot of the strategies we talk about in the book in what I believe is a very ethical way. But if he had tried nonviolent resistance before mass media, especially before television, they would have just come in and killed everybody or beaten them up. And no one would have known the difference, right? And, you know, Martin Luther in the Middle Ages, there had been people who had tried what he tried. There had been people who spoke out against the church in a little town and they found them and they burned them at the stake and no one ever heard about it. But Martin Luther, what made him different is that he wrote his document and put it on the church wall and someone copied it down. Probably he had them do it and used the printing press to spread it all over Europe. So, I mean, I mean, how can I say this? The strategies are the strategies. The human brain doesn't change, but there are infinite permutations of the strategies. And those have to do with the technology you have. The Christian church took a couple hundred years to become a major world religion. And Mormonism took 75 years. And the next religion might take 15, you know? (laughs) This amplification is something that we are probably not very used to as humans yet. Right. You know, social media, at least the way we know it right now, it has to change one way or the other. And I'm curious because as a person who is in the middle of it, you must have an opinion about it. And I'm just curious, how do you see that? Yeah, I think about it a lot. I don't know what my opinion is yet. When I first saw their marketing engine, how they serve up ads that are completely targeted, and then you can feed the results back into the system. And this is a little off topic from the hype stuff, but it's really interesting. When I first saw that, I I said to somebody that I was being shown by, I was like, this is the most powerful marketing engine like ever known to man. And I don't mean a hype engine. I just mean the fact that if you have the right message, because if you don't have the right message, I've seen so many people try to do this and they fail because they don't have the right message. But if you have the right message, it's insane what you can do with this thing. But, you know, the more I've seen Facebook, I so like. Google, they do some sinister stuff too, but it's a really great product. I mean, it's really changed the world. It's like this mega library of anything you ever wanted to know. I mean, whoever thought Amazon, you know, Jeff Bezos, very Machiavellian guy, monopolistic, but it's amazing. I mean, it's an amazing product, right? 
I don't know what Facebook does for anyone's life except make them waste time at work and make them miserable by comparing. Like what my, my mother will say, well, I can see pictures of my grandkids. And I'm like, okay, that's something. I can put sparkles on the end of my shoelaces and make them look nicer. But is that worth being one of the biggest companies in the world that's overthrowing elections, causing genocides, changing people's minds, you know, in ways that have never been seen before? So I don't really know. And I have friends who work there, so I hope they don't hear this, but I don't know what good that company does for the world and their power is incredible. And so now the founder of the company is trying to make us all live in the metaverse. I sometimes feel like the people who start these companies in another era would have just been these like misfit people. I remember watching the movie Revenge of the Nerds where like the biggest misfit nerds in the school, and I was a nerd, but the biggest nerds in the school were people who messed with computers because they couldn't interact with other human beings. And nothing against those people. They're human beings like anyone else. And, you know, I have some of those tendencies, but I feel like those people have like taken over the world and are now wreaking revenge and like reshaping the world. We don't even want to live in the flesh. We're going to live in the metaverse where we don't have to interact with other human beings. Yeah, I think it's weird. If I am to provoke you a little bit on this. <laughs> this was a very rambling conversation. I just went on to a rant. I'm sorry. Yeah. I guess I No, yeah. no, no, no. I, I love cool. it. That's cool. That's, <laughs> that's what we're looking for. <laughs> yeah. But if you were to give an idea for what the future of social media could potentially be, what would you say? You know, I say in my book that predicting things is one of the best hype strategies because yes, it I makes know. you feel like a guru. I'm terrible at it. I'll just be <laughs> honest. Um, I make all kinds of horrible predictions. I remember when Steve Jobs first came back to Apple and the iBooks came out, those like ones with, that are white with the colors. I remember saying to somebody in the computer store, I'm like embarrassed to say this. I said, that thing is really cool looking, but I don't think it's going to succeed. And they said, well, I said, well, it doesn't have a floppy drive. Like how are you going to take your stuff off the computer, you know, and move it to another computer, print stuff out, right? So that shows you the worth of my predictions, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure social media is going anywhere. I don't know what it's going to look like. I think it's a technology and it's it's here no matter what. I mean, television, they used to say rotted your brain. It most certainly does. But now people have figured out how to make really great TV that's, just, that's better than the movies. That being said, okay, let me go off on a real tangent. So let's use the TV comparison. The reason that TV used to be so bad and was so lowest common denominator was because it was free. Mm -hmm. So... It was free. And as a result, you had to appeal to everybody because the whole game was getting eyeballs because the people were the product. You were selling advertisements, right? So your customers were the advertisers. And so they needed to know metrics through Nielsen, how many people are watching the TV. So you couldn't put a madman on because only that's like a, a really fraction. sophisticated show, a fraction of the population like that. So you put on Battle of the Network Stars and the greatest American hero about a bad superhero who can barely fly and crashes into buildings or chips where like they commit crimes on moving vehicles so they can like have cool motorcycle stunts, you know, so garbage. And people would just flip around and watch this. So what they changed was now people have subscription-based cable. So if you want to see Game of Thrones or Mad Men or Sopranos or, or one of these shows that are every bit as good as movies, better, you need to subscribe. 
it's not free garbage that they're selling to advertisers. They're catering to paying subscribers. So, you know, Facebook, it would be hard for them to give up their model because people aren't going to pay. They're already getting it for free. But if someone could figure out a way to make such compelling content that people were willing to pay for it and the other stuff became less popular, I think that's a much better model. I think when you're selling... I'm not the first person to say this. It's a common quote. I, I think um, Tim Wu said it, but if you're getting something for free, you're the product, yeah. right? And I think that's true. I think that's the problem. The technology is the technology, but um, we're being used. Mm. I think that Medium tried to change that a little bit and they are not particularly successful, in my opinion, uh, with what they are Sub doing. Substack does. The newsletter thing works well. I mean, mm -hmm. people are paying. There's all kinds of free content online, but people sign up to these newsletters, these Substack newsletters and pay for them because the content is so deep and so good. Mm -hmm. um, that is working better than Medium, I believe. Yeah, exactly. So I think that we have some early birds of it. Yeah. And the question is, for me at least, when the flip will happen and how it's gonna look like. And I'm so much cheering for this to happen at some point. Not to be a bad capitalist because I'm not a socialist and I own a business, but um, I think maybe regulation would help. I, I mean, I know people are saying there's a free speech play and that's true. You don't want to punish speech you don't like and that sort of thing. You know, Standard Oil in the 19th century bought up all the small refineries by undercutting them in the market because they had the power and bought everything up. And then they had a monopoly and drove prices up and this and then the government broke them up and it was a good thing. So this isn't social media, but Amazon, it's so clearly monopolistic. I mean, they when they came into the book market, they were pricing eBooks at $9.99 for paperbacks that sold for 30. They got everyone on the e-readers and now they charge $15 for something that has no printing costs. So the practices of a lot of these companies are very monopolistic and there's been deregulation for years. And the way I see it is, you know, you don't have a basketball game without a referee. I mean, just because you're a capitalist doesn't mean that you don't have a referee. And I, I think that, um, These companies just run roughshod and whoever's the most ruthless wins at this point. Well, the social network is, I think, like Mike said already, that it has to cater to everyone. But for example, uh, I think on YouTube, I found a guy who was really good analysis like of, of music theory. I just wanted to look into this. And he, on YouTube, you get for free a substantial chunk of information. It's really yeah. like, you know, a piece of content on its own. But he says, but if you want even more details, more deeper stuff, there is another platform that me and, uh, you know, and uh, more people like right. this are, then you pay. Mm -hmm. But this also means that if you go for this kind of, like a substack for the deeper content, your audience is much smaller. Always smaller, yeah. And now it comes like the network effect and everything else. So it seems like these days, It might work when you use the, the maximum amplification with the big audiences just on a social network, but you sell somewhere else. That's a great point. And that's one solution. I think bringing up YouTube, I mean, we're really going in all different directions, but that reminded me how the technology is sort of amoral and it's about how it's used. So I have an 11 year old daughter and um, during the pandemic, we got really bad about her screen time. Used to be very rigorous. And she was just on it all day. And now she's cut back to two hours a day again. But the thing is, 
So some of the videos she watches are such garbage and just mind rotting. And I mean mind rotting because they're addictive. People playing video games and screaming and spitting at the screen, you know, it's garbage. But then she sees this one person, Jessica Kent, and for better or worse, the person is a prison reform activist. And as a result, she's gotten very into prison reform and knows all the issues and just knows it backwards and forwards. And yeah, like YouTube has great, great, great content, but you have to sort through such garbage. I think the problem is ultimately it's designed to to hook you. Mm. I read a book, not to get back into politics, so I'll try to temper what I'm saying, but I, I read a book lately that talks about how people get radicalized on YouTube. So what happens is you might see a very tame video, you know, let's say it's the police benevolent association that, you know, just helps police who have been injured. Great thing. You watch a video, but content that's more incendiary keeps you on longer and that's how they get advertising dollars. So the next thing they test is pro-police, whatever, you know, still an okay message. You watch it, you start commenting. So the next thing they serve up is militias to support the police, you know, against the racial blah, blah, blah. And as you go on, they throw new kinds of more engaging, quote unquote, content at you to try to hook you because all they care about, it's an algorithm, but the longer you stay on the site, the more ads you see. So I guess we're combining our arguments. There's great stuff on there, but the fact that the algorithm is set up to serve you advertisements and anyone can post anything and there are no rules. At least we have the FCC in the television era, right? But the problem is, won't there still be people using the free services? If you create those paid things, won't there still be the reality TV market? There's a madman market, but there are still people who watch free TV. I don't know. How do you fix it? Maybe we're just not ready. I mean, the printing press caused millions of deaths with the religious wars and we eventually worked it out maybe it's just a bleak situation for a while it's still very recent so we yeah don't exactly really. it's very recent it's 2007 that facebook uh, it started with started, yeah. pictures of your friends and your that's what it was kids, yeah, yeah exactly. i feel like it's been around forever right which brings me to the topic that i sense is very important for you as well which is the ethics of it all because Like you say, everything that we use, be it principles, be it tools, be it those platforms, they are amoral in a sense that they don't have morality of its own. So at the end of the day, it's really up to us what we do with it. So are these ethical rules something that we define for ourselves, so you and us, Or is it something more general? Yeah, it's such a great question. And it's such an important question that I thought about something similar when I was even deciding whether to write the book. Because when I came up with the idea with the book, it kind of hit me in a flash. And I thought to myself, this is a really good book idea. And I really want to do this. But I remember thinking, like, do I really want to teach people these strategies? Because I, I know they work because I've used some of them in my own business, but even more importantly, I've done massive amounts of research and sort of pulled out the themes, interviewed people, read hundreds of books. And, you know, I could say all day long that you need to be ethical, but ultimately if there's someone who wants to use it for ill, won't they? And what I realized was the bad guys already know how to do this. Hmm. So they did a, a psychological study in a controlled environment where they put 
various people, some of whom had what they call antisocial personality disorders, so psychopaths and sociopaths and people like that, in interpersonally stressful situations and measured their physiological symptoms. And the people with those symptoms, like their, their pulse and heart rate and breathing didn't really change. So when people are kind of sociopathic, which a lot of the, the bad examples of the people in the book are, they don't get affected by the emotions the rest of us do. So like someone like us, we might say, well, the work should speak for itself. I don't really feel comfortable doing this. I don't feel comfortable doing that. It would embarrass me. It would make me feel bad. Whereas those people, they just do it. They look at human beings like chess pieces, right? So what I realized was it was really in my work. I work with a lot of consultants and some of these consultants, especially the smaller ones, their work is so good. Their ideas are so good. I mean, in one case, the guy's work was like saving lives at hospitals and all of his clients just came from like referrals and networking because he really just, he sort of felt the work should speak for itself. So it just became really important to me to say to people who really do have good ideas, listen, it's like your moral imperative to use this stuff as long as you're guided by the right ethical framework, because otherwise all of the attention goes to the shysters, right? And I guess what I would add to that is ultimately I can't give someone else a moral code, right? That's your own decision. I can give some suggestions though. I mean, what I use for myself is um, I never deceive and don't make people's lives worse than when you found them, make their lives better. If I can filter things through those two things, I'm not saying hype is not the equivalent of lying, right? You, you don't lie and you don't take advantage of people where you're enriched at their expense. I feel like if I have those two things as a filter, I pre feel pretty comfortable persuading them in, in a way that's effective. Yeah, that's really interesting because it comes back to your story about the early rapmen and their goal was to build the attention for their music, but not to deceive anyone or not to harm anyone with it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in the best cases of hype, sometimes the hype adds color. It's part of the work. Rap is an example, but... Andy Warhol is a perfect example. If he hadn't had his persona and his silver colored factory and his happenings and his wig and his commentary on consumer goods, does a painted soup can really like, is that, I mean, it's, it's fine, <laughs> but is it really about the painted soup can or is it about the whole shebang? Is it about the whole package? And so the hype was part of the thing. It was that when Journalists asked him, why do you paint soup? He would say, because I like soup. <laughs> and he would let the press debate it for weeks, right? So I think in, in the best cases, the hype is part of the art or part of the product, right? And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, it might be an American thing. I think we've added that to the culture more than maybe other countries. But I don't know that that's a negative always. What you said just now that hype can be part of the art and like make the story around the product, around what you are offering, be more appealing. Like we talked about those myths, it kind of draws attention and therefore you, you have at least the space to share your message. And then, you know, the message has to be good, obviously, in order to yeah. be appreciated and followed. 
Well, I think it applies to business in the best cases too. I don't think it's just a means of ripping someone off. I think about Richard Branson. I remember I flew to London, uh, which I don't do often. So I took Virgin Airlines, which flies from New York to London because they, they don't fly that much in the United States domestically. And I know about Richard Branson and I know his brand and I know that he is photographed with a supermodel back on a jet ski, even though he's happily married. And I know that he's all about fun and experience and this. So I, I went on the, the flight and every part of it, I really loved being hyped. It was really pleasurable. I mean, there were black lights when you walk on their costumes and I call them costumes of the flight attendants were super cool and retro. The video was funny and ironic. And if I didn't know the Richard Branson thing, I would have kind of been like, Cool, you know, but it was like, I almost felt for a minute that I got a slice of Necker Island, like this playful life that Richard Branson lives where everything is fun, you know, and everything's an adventure. Like a schlub like me got to be part of that for five hours. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. It made my life a little bit brighter. He didn't rip me off. He made me a little bit happier. You know, flights are annoying. (laughs) You're suffering through a five hour flight crammed into a seat. You know, I, I had a nice time. Mm. and felt like a big shot. When I'm thinking about what you call hype and business, is it's not a perfect metaphor, but it feels like it's the packaging you get your product in, right? I, oh, mean, to- it's, I use that metaphor. In, oh, in, right. I, I think it's a wonderful way of looking at it. But I think you don't stop at the packaging, mm. right? I've always been amazed by um, potato chips because I would buy potato chips as a kid and I would get like Lay's potato chips and that like shiny neon green package, you know, I liked them a lot as a kid, but I felt like I was eating junk food. And then as I got older, I'm like eating these potato chips. I'm like, I'm eating garbage. And then I would get these potato chips as an adult, which were in this like crinkly brown package as if it came from like the corner store in the 1800s. And I somehow felt I was eating better potato chips. Like they were somehow like more nutritious or like (laughs) healthier or something. And were they? You know, how much of that had to do with the paper, you know, bag versus the neon green bag, right? And it like affected my perception. I just feel like the potato chips tasted more wholesome somehow. (laughs) It reminds me of uh, one of the books of Bill Bryson. He's traveling across UK. Yeah. And at some point he's driving from one place to another and the destination is basically a pub. (laughs) So he's driving in the (laughs) night, it's dark, and he's passing a potato chip factory which is all lit up with lights. And he has this reflection, which I absolutely loved, is that like while he's driving here thinking about another beer, these guys are basically getting almost suicidal about the next shape of the potato chip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's so funny. That's a whole conversation about the potato chips in England. They have some weird flavors. But, but you know, the packaging is interesting because I think it even goes beyond the package. Like I'll see a lot of people on the go, you know, we got to get our website right, which is the modern equivalent to a package. but your packaging is everything from what clothing do you wear when you're on a podcast like this to how do you speak to what's on your wall. And no one is perfect with that. But if you look at the absolute best hype people, they live what they, I mean, Richard Branson, he lives on an island that features in his public relations material, you know, like everything he does. And that takes a lot of commitment, but 
the best typewriters, they package everything and it's all consistent with their point of view. Mm. Yeah, consistency is super important there, right? Yeah, mm. I, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> When you said that he's living there, I imagine that there are people who don't create this hype consciously. It's just how they are. And I assume they would be like the most successful because you don't see any cracks in it because it's, it's really how they are, right? I think most of the best ones that I studied, the reason that I studied it so academically like this was because I was terrible at marketing and sales, which is really ironic since that's what I sort of do for a living. But I would see these people who were so natural at it and it scared me because I, I wanted to do some things in my life and, and make a living at it. I just, for a minute, I was like, I got interested. I was like, do I have to be naturally good at promoting myself and sales? And if not, should I just go get a job because I'm destined to fail? And what I realized is a lot of the people are naturally good at it, but by studying them and distilling out certain principles, you can replicate what they do. So I actually ended up getting very good at promotion, obviously, and, and even I'm quite good at sales. But I took a very deliberate study. But yeah, like, and you know, people say about martial arts, you talked about martial arts in the beginning. There's a theory that the first martial arts were created, they evolved when like there was someone in the village who just was a really good fighter, just like really good at getting in fights and winning fights. So some people asked them, like, can you teach me how to fight? So they taught them the moves. And then the next group of people said, let me teach you those moves and get rid of the pieces that don't work. And then over the generations, it becomes a system that anyone can learn, right? But ultimately, it starts out with someone who's just naturally really good at beating people up <laughs> and move their body a certain way to do that. Yeah. Indeed. Let me just just drill a little bit more into this, what you can learn. And how does this relate to authenticity? And that the path is probably through principles, not the rules, but... If you just balance those to me, right? So you suppose that I want to get better in sales and marketing, which actually could be a good use of my time. <laughs> <laughs> so if I want to get better at it, I mean, I cannot just try to learn from the people whose personality is completely different than mine. No. Right? I, I really have to somehow adapt it and make it somehow mine, right? Well, yeah, 100%. I think it's, again, it goes back to the theme of, of this interview, which is strategies versus tactics. So I'll, I mean, I'll give you my own story and I, hopefully that'll help. Let's talk about sales for a minute, not promotion and marketing mm -hmm. because it's related, but not the same. I was the worst at sales. You know, I wanted to start a writing business, a copywriting business. That was the first variation of the business. I'm a good writer. I mean, I always did that well, right? But I was so terrible at sales. So people would come to me and like, say I'm sort of interested and I would spend like a week doing a proposal and then they would never call me back, just a generic proposal. So then I started taking sales classes and I did exactly what you said. I would follow the rules to a T in a way that didn't fit me. So for example, they said, sometimes you've got to push people away to get them to come to you. So someone would say to me, I'm really excited. Da, da, da. I'd be like, well, I'm not sure this is right for you. And then they'd be like, well, why are you talking to me? Okay, I won't work with you, right? So I was like following it rigidly. And I think what changed for me is I realized there were strategies that human beings follow along, but you've of course got to adapt it to you. I mean, so again, not to use this metaphor, but it, well, I will use this metaphor because it's very related and people may not like this, but dating, right? I think it's probably true that people always want what they can't have. That if you slobber all over somebody and are extremely 
eager. And on the second date, you're like, oh, this works. Sometimes I was like, you're the one for me. It's probably not going to work. So what a lot of people say is, well, I don't want to play games. If I like someone, I'm going to tell them you're, you're the one for you. There's a way to do that without playing games. You know what I mean? Like you can work on yourself and not change your personality, but calm down a little bit, you know, and realize that there's more than one person for everybody. Or like someone comes to a date dressed like a schlub and they say, well, I'm a, that's how I dress. Okay. I mean, you don't have to wear a costume, but you could wear clean pants, you know, <laughs> like that's a principle. Don't say that I'm a schlub. I just pick up my wrinkled stuff off the floor. Okay. If that's you, <laughs> but like, you like jeans, wear clean jeans. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I guess what I'm saying is I think what a lot of the hype artists do is they start with the most authentic stuff and they actually start with their weaknesses instead of their strengths. I see this a lot, but they flip those strengths into their best attribute. Andy Warhol was pathologically shy. He probably had what would be called social anxiety disorder today. And he said, I can either try to become a mildly gregarious person, which would be exhausting and fake, or how can I turn my shyness into part of my persona? And he did that whole thing where he would like, talk in one word answers and he became this enigmatic figure. So what I might say to you is a learn the principles, but do it in a way that works with you. So if you're trying to create your persona, don't just copy what someone else does, but say, what is something I'm actually a little bit insecure about and how can I make that my best trait? So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm a bit of a people pleaser, which I never really liked about myself. I grew up in a family that was very hard driving. I don't like to hurt people's feelings sometimes, all, all of that. And I didn't think of that as a positive. I thought of it as a negative. I didn't like that about myself. And so I tried to not be like that. And that backfired because I am who I am. So what I did was I made that part of my persona. I built this idea of the secret society. You know what I mean? That the well-connected people who work things behind the scenes, you know, um, and I'm the head of the secret society. I hold dinners. I've turned that into part of my thing. And that's the people pleasing has now become secrets, master of the secret society, right? So <laughs> I don't know if I'm answering your questions, but I would say that some overarching principles you just have to work on. There's no, I mean, people respond how they respond, but I think you can really do it. The specifics can really be tailored to you. I would not try to model somebody who isn't, isn't <laughs> you. And by the way, if any of you, our listeners would like to hear more about the secret societies, you can find the two episodes with John Law who was one of the early funders with The Burning Man. And there is oh, a love, lot cool. of stories yeah, about secret neat. societies yeah. in, the, in these two episodes. I'm going to go back and listen to that. Yeah, totally, cool. totally recommend. So what you're talking about with hype is to try to do things for the first time because then you create hype. Otherwise, it's not hype anymore. It's just a a tactic that's been repeated over and over again. Or try to stand out. I mean, you know, I mean, I would say use principles that are time tested, but try to attract attention. Don't just follow the tactics that everyone else is doing. Yeah. So how do you do that? I run a lot of what I call gambits, uh, experiments. I place a lot of bets. So what I do is I use the model of applying to colleges and I do this with my clients too. So when I was applying to colleges, our guidance counselor, our college guidance counselor, told us that we needed to apply to safety schools, target schools, and reach schools. So a safety school is a school that you were pretty certain you would get into, you know, with your grades and your test scores. 
a target school is the one that, you know, you're probably going to get into. It's, it's a good bet. You'd be really happy to go there, but you know, you may not. And a reach school is like, let's say you're a really good student, but Harvard, who gets into Harvard, right? <laughs> but you apply. It's a reach because if it happens, it's going to be life changing. So I think of it the same way. So if I look at a hype strategy, so let's say it's make war, not love. The thing about picking fights, I'll say, okay, what's a safety experiment? Well, okay. Um, I could write an article taking down a prominent guru. You know what I mean? So that's a safety thing. I know I can write. I know I have the ability to do that, et cetera. What's a reach experiment? I come up with the most crazy, nutty things that are probably bad ideas. I mean, anything from, I don't know, go to Gary Vaynerchuk's office and have a film crew a film me yelling out obscenities in front of the thing. Now, I'm probably never going to try that, and I'm never going to do that, and I'm not recommending that because you'll get arrested. But if I come up with all those crazy ideas, then I can say, what part of that can I do on a very small level? And if, if it doesn't work, no harm, no foul. But if it does, it's life-changing. So, I mean, I think about, you know, in the, the late 1990s, it's like, um, hey, uh, why don't we go into a forest, make a movie with a $30,000 budget, put a bunch of actors in the forest, not tell them what the movie's about, make sure they're hungry and scared and miserable the whole time, film their reactions and release it on this thing that no one uses called the internet. Terrible idea, crazy, should not work, but it became the Blair Witch Project, right? And it's one of the best marketing campaigns of all time. So I think you got to kind of like spread your bets, like really do stuff that, you, you know, you can do and then come up with like, say to yourself, what's a hundred bad ideas I can come up with as, as long as it's guided by this hype principle and then try little segments of that. And sometimes that's where the magic happens. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this season is about doing things. And we talked a lot about how to do things in terms of building the audience and catching the attention of the people you want to, to get to. But I'm curious, what is your personal practice of doing things? Um, I guess I think about how bad it would be to live in a cardboard box. No, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I could be better. That's a good motivation. <laughs> you know? I mean, I could be better about this. I'm working on it. You know, I mean, I, I read all these books about habit formation. I take certain things. I stick. Or usually I abandon this stuff. I mean, one thing I do do very rigorously is I get up every morning or most mornings, I should say, and write, you know, with my coffee. But that's as much because I enjoy that and it feels good to do that. But yeah, I mean, I, I use some weekly planners. I use some yearly planners. But I mean, ultimately... I hear all this stuff, these people who time box every element of their day and they have perfect habit formation and this and that. And I'm sure there are people who do that. I sometimes wonder if some of that's as much hype and marketing as anything else, that if there's that they're speaking very confidently about something that's not totally perfect. But I guess I, ultimately I just have, I just do it. I, I, I plan my week and it always goes off the rails and I try to get as much done as I can get done. I know that's not really a, a great answer, but uh, it's the truth. It's a very realistic answer for a lot of people. <laughs> uh, yeah. Speaking of those personal productivity people, there was very timely and very accurately an article not so long ago in New Yorker which was called the rise and fall of getting things done. 
And it was a story also about a little bit of history. It's like New Yorker, it's like a little bit longer form. Yeah. And also about Manfred Mann, who was, I think it was Manfred Mann, who was the person who basically, who built the hype around it, who started the hype. About the G, like getting things done. The, the, yeah, the and personal productivity started from yeah. it. And there is yeah. also a story towards the end, how he became basically disenchanted with his own thing that he created. And one of the issues is that those personal productivity nerds or geeks, however he called them, some of them are caught in perfecting their productivity tools and routines, and they stop doing the relevant stuff. It became yeah, th things on its own, true. and that's yeah. probably a, a really dead end. I was a really skinny teenager. I grew really fast, and I decided at a certain point that I no longer wanted to look like that. And so I started working out and I realized I had to eat a certain way. And I would like see things like, like, I think I saw that Sylvester Stallone ate a cup of brown rice every day. So I was like, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll eat a cup of brown rice every day and I'll look like Sylvester Stallone. You know what I mean? And you know, I'm not Sylvester <laughs> Stallone. I'm six foot You're four. You're Robert and, Downey Jr., right? <laughs> I'm Robert Downey Jr., exactly. <laughs> I guess I think a lot of these personal productivity things are like our personal stories. Like someone will say, you've absolutely got to outline your day and time box, da, 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 da. And it's like, you absolutely have to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I could be better at time management. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that on a show where I'm promoting a book, but I work on it every day. So there's things to learn, but I've just become convinced that it's got to be personal. I think that these all-encompassing time management systems, I don't know, have they worked for you? I mean, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm on and off on it. I, I really take it up if I feel the need to do this. Yeah. But for me, this is means to an end rather than right. the end on its own. And this is what I right. wanted to stress, that difference, right? That makes a lot of sense. Because some people get so up, they become like you said, get GTD geeks, right? Like they have the tickler files and the thing that can be, yeah, I try to pick and choose tactics that will help me. But yeah, I think, um, I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head. Look at someone like Tim Ferriss, who I really admire. He gives you all these tips and tactics on how to be like a machine. And I always felt bad about myself because I could just never do it, you know? And then I realized, like, he has massive issues with depression, which he's been very honest about lately. He's very successful, so everyone should learn from him. But at the same time, his, I don't want to say insane, that's the wrong choice of words, his incredibly obsessive and rigorous measurement of every facet in his life and optimization is, by his own admission, a way to control reality because he feels so out of control with his depression and it's helped for him but i don't know that a, that someone else with different psychological makeup can be that guy i think he's a very strange person not in a bad way i just don't think he's made up like other people mm -hmm. but he writes books telling you how to do exactly what he did and people follow them and they don't become Tim Ferriss. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm really big on separating means from ends. And I have this like in every slideshow, in every basically presentation I do, I have this slide and I show like a really muscular man, like really thin and ripped and, you know, great. And very few people recognize who that is because it's a very famous person. And since I'm not showing you, I cannot hold you yeah to this uh, tension but it says then i ask what do you have to do in order to look like this 
and it's a real person. So the first, and I started showing a bullet list, and the first bullet is eat 16,000 calories a day. <laughs> One right? sixth. Yeah, 16. That sounds fun. Yeah. And then the second, <laughs> the second bullet is in order to, and then the next one is swim uh, 40 kilometers yeah, a day, right. five days a week, right. because it's Michael Phelps. Yeah, right, right. 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 So you can eat 16,000 calories a day if you're swimming yeah. 40. Otherwise you wouldn't water. be able to, but if you look right, at exactly. the whole list, and there's like five or six bullets on it, every single one separately would kill anyone in my audience every time because eating that yeah, if you said if you had our lifestyle and ate sixteen thousand yeah. calories a day you would vomit yeah yeah if you swam that much without any preparation you would drown right i mean right. each single bullet is right lethal absolutely lethal and if you weren't michael phelps his lungs are bigger than other people's yeah. lungs like they've studied his body he has a freakish he is body but yeah he, but what is it for it is to be as successful at swimming with his stuff. And then I say, right. what company did you copy last time? And people these days, uh, they stop staying Spotify and ask him, do you know why Spotify? Was, I mean, Elon Musk, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But what was it for? And it turns out their goal that they are trying to copy re the recipe from was completely different from the audience who wants to basically use it. And it just all like falls apart. And it's just, why would you I, do I this? I see that like, all the time. People will come to me when we were more of a traditional agency and they would say, I got to build this big Twitter following. And I would say to them, so you're a consultant. How much is one client worth to you? $70,000. Okay. How many clients do you need next year to be game changing? Eight. I was like, do you think of those million Twitter followers? Do you think those people, like how many of them? I'm like, you'd be better off having a hundred millionaires listening to a very small podcast. But you're just like somehow, well, well yeah, but 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 uh, this company, this executive coach, Marshall Goldsmith has a million Twitter followers. I was like, yeah, but why does he have a million Twitter followers? <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. What is his strategy? Did you ever get to that? Maybe he makes more money doing mass courses for $100 a a course, you know? <laughs> is that the model you want? Do you want to change your model? Mm, yeah. 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 Yeah, that reminds me of a lot of clients of yours, Lukasz, oh. when you were collaborating with the software house and they would come and ask for an app. And the question was like, what do you need the app for? Right. And the answer was like, everybody has an app, so we that's need an right. app as well. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. want to be forward. You know, we want to, that's the new thing, apps. It's the new technology, right? Yeah. That people, even really, really smart people do that. I mean, I've done it. I think we all just want a recipe. You look at someone and I just want to know, I mean, life is hard. It's as if I do these 10 things, even if it's hard work, I know exactly what I need to do. And I, I just don't think life works that way. No, it doesn't. No, not at all. So if you were to recommend a book to our listeners, which is about doing things, but not necessarily about getting things done, <laughs> what would that be? I really like the work of this guy named Franz Johansson. He ended up becoming a client for a time, but I, I was a fan of his well before he became a client. I sought him out. His most famous book is called The Medici Effect, which is a good book. But the one that I like better, which didn't get as much attention and which really influenced me, was called The Click Moment. And basically, he talks about it's funny, he draws on everything. He talks about quantum mechanics and chaos theory, but not in a high, complicated way. He basically just talks about how everyone 
presents their success as if it's strategized. Actually, this is very um, relevant. Microsoft created DOS and then they created Windows and it was this strategic plan that followed A to Z, blah, 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 blah. And so we pay people to build strategy plans and business plans and this and that. And what it turns out is that the world is very random and most successes happen from serendipity. So if you hear the real story of how Windows happened, they were trying to build Windows and failing. And two guys ran into each other at a party, someone who didn't work at the company who had a certain skill set and someone who did. And that night they started coding just to solve the problem and it led to Windows. It would have failed otherwise. So what he talks about is, A, you have to recognize that. And B, if that's the case, if the world is random, do you just throw up your hands and give up? And he says, no, you need a system for capturing randomness. So that's where my small bets idea comes from. He says, first of all, you need to be creating collisions, random collisions, you know, really digesting diverse stimuli, putting yourself in interesting situations. And then you need to do, instead of putting five years and a million dollars into one project, put $10,000 into 20 projects over six months. And then he talks about doubling and tripling down on the things that catch fire. And it just really informed the way I, I work, I mean, I and think. And the, these collisions and serendipity are these conversations that we are creating on this podcast, isn't it? I do hope so. <laughs> I, I, they, do, they do work like that for me, for sure. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for this amazing collision <laughs> of ideas and thoughts and tangents and all the uh, provocations. provocations that you shared. Thank you us. for putting up with my crazy brain. I feel like I, I didn't have to rein myself in, you know, I got to <laughs> indulge all my uh, weird tangents. So thank you. This is what we are looking for <laughs> all the time. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. Yeah, I always think it's funny that um, in English Scrabble, the Z is worth like 10 points. And in Polish, I think it's worth one point.